0: Well, there are many things that we can learn from the life of David, and particularly, particularly in this story in 1 Samuel 19. We're going to be looking at the whole of 1 Samuel 19, and as well, so stay there, and, and Psalm 59, so we'll be, we'll be in both places today. But in my opinion, this story in 1 Samuel 19, and David's response to this story, which comes in Psalm 59, answers a singular question. How will you endure the injustices and the pain that life in a broken world will bring? How will you endure the injustices and the pain that life in a broken world will inevitably bring? That's precisely what's at stake in 1 Samuel 19. David is facing immense persecution, completely undeserved. It's disrupting his family life. He's now displaced from his home. Even his very, his very life is under threat. All those amazing, great promises that, that God gave to David about him being a king and a great future were in total contrast with his, with his present situation. I think David could see his aspirations and his dreams just fall apart right before him. This is the kind of stuff that will either make you or it will break you. And I want to know in this passage, why didn't the injustice and the pain of it all break David? Well, to answer that question, why didn't the pain and injustice break David, we're going to have to look, retell, or explore this story in 1 Samuel 19, and then we're going to have to look at his response in Psalm 59. But this story actually unfolds in three different episodes of God's amazing deliverance. But I want to set the stage of David's life before we get to 1 Samuel 19. Up to this point in 1 Samuel, David's life has been one continual story of unprecedented success. I mean, it's a classic rags-to-riches story. David it does not come from a significant family. He's, he's the youngest brother of eight. He's the runt, as the video just said. He's a simple shepherd boy. And yet, in the matter of just three chapters, he single-handedly defeats the kingdom of Israel's greatest threat in Goliath. He's anointed as the future king. He's made the commander of all of Israel's armies. He's by far the greatest war hero in Israel. He's, He's by far the most popular figure in Israel. And to top it all off, he's now married. He wasn't from a family of significance, but he's now married into the royal family. His wife is Michal, Saul's daughter. In fact, the narrator in, Psalm, in, in 1 Samuel 18 emphasizes four different times how much success and success and success and success David has. The arrow of his life is pointed up. But the script of David's life flips in chapter 19. This kind of reversal in David's life is akin to the story of Job. who, who, like David, has incredible success in all aspects of life, and then in a moment, it evaporates. And like Job, David's world begins to crumble in chapter 19. Just at this point, where David's world is crumbling, we also see God's amazing deliverance in his life from the murderous plots of King Saul. Episode 1, verses 1 to 7. David's deliverance occurs through Jonathan. So at the beginning of chapter 19, Saul calls his executive cabinet together, which, of course, includes Jonathan, his son. And this meeting has one aim. We need to kill David off. Saul's insanely jealous of David, right? He's threatened by his popularity among the people. Jonathan's loyalty, however, is with God, and because it's with God, his loyalty is to David, and so Jonathan, that ever-faithful friend we learned about last week, warns David of his father's plot. But he also puts David at ease, doesn't he? He says, listen, don't run for it yet, David. I think I can reason with my father. And so Jonathan goes back to his father and he pleads David, David's cause. And he says to his, his dad, uh, first, dad, David's done nothing to deserve your anger. He, he's totally innocent. And secondly, because he's innocent, if you shed innocent blood, if you go after David's life, you're going to be the one that's guilty under the law. And then finally, Dad, consider what David has done for our family and for our country. He has literally risked his life for us. Remarkably, Saul listens to Jonathan and he relents. Crisis averted for now. Verse 8 provides the transition to the episode number 2. The crisis wouldn't be averted for long. Once again, war broke out, so some time has passed. The Philistines are back in town, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. Okay, okay, war breaks out, David succeeds, and if you're reading the book of 1 Samuel, you begin to expect something to happen. Every time David succeeds in battle, Saul immediately responds with insane, murderous jealousy. And as we move into episode 2, David is once again the object of Saul's hatred. Episode 2 is David's deliverance through Saul's other child, McCall. And this is what we just read from. So Israel's battle with the Philistines has finished. And David now resumes his employment in, the court, as a, as, in Saul's court as a musician. Now we have to understand the stage here. Saul is appearing more and more psychotic. He's, he's constantly flipping back and flip-flopping back and forth between wanting to kill David and then the next second he's trying to praise David. Uh, he, he really does look incredibly disturbed and psychopathic here. And, and while David is playing his music, he lashes, Saul lashes out in uncontrollable anger and shucks a spear at his head. Now, if you've been reading along, this has already happened. But for some reason, David had felt that the earlier you know, flashes of Saul's anger when he threw a spear at him, weren't so much directed at him, but was just part of his uncontrollable anger that would just flash out. So he wasn't super worried about it. But this time, it's different. He knows that Saul wants to kill him. He's already heard from Jonathan. So he doesn't hang around the palace for a second longer. He immediately escapes and flees to his home in Gibeah. But he's not safe there either, is he? Saul, of course, sends his police force to surround David's house and to lie in wait outside of David's house so that when he gets up in the morning and goes wherever he goes, they will capture him and bring him to Saul where they will kill him. David's wife, Saul's daughter, Michal, get, she, 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 has, you know, she gets the inside information and she knows this is the plan. So when he gets home that day, she goes, you can't wait until the, tomorrow morning to escape. You've got to leave tonight, David. And in heroic fashion, we've already seen this before happen a few times in the Bible, Michal lets David down from a high window where he can escape. I'm not sure how high it was. It seems that the house must have been, as many were, built into the walls of the city. So there was a wall, he, would, he might have you know, cascaded down the, the wall. Then in, in further defiance of her father's plan, McCall takes a household statue and, and some goat hair and she tucks it under the covers where David would have slept and so when the police force of Saul gets to the door and, and, they, and they knock and they want David to bring him out and bring him to Saul to kill him she goes sorry he, he, he's in bed sick come get him later gives him some time to escape well Saul finally finds out that his own daughter has thwarted his plans and all the while David has made his escape About three miles north, I guess I don't know why I pointed up as north, but three miles north to a town called Ramah. He goes to Ramah because that's where the high priest, Samuel, lives. David's not safe in the royal court. He's not safe in his own home. But he says, you know, he thinks certainly to himself, Saul probably won't pursue me while I'm under the protection of the high priest of Israel. This is the spiritual leader of Israel. If I'm protected by Samuel, certainly he won't continue coming after me. But he's dead wrong. Episode 3, verses 18 to 24. Saul has eyes and ears. Everywhere, seemingly. And he gets word that David has sought refuge with Samuel in Ramah. And this time, God's deliverance comes to David, not through the ordinary means of Jonathan and Michal, but through extraordinary intervention by God himself. And I might add rather humorous intervention as well. Saul sends, when he hears of where David is, he sends a police force to to Ramah to make a search and capture mission. And as they approach the camp where David is staying, Saul's men encounter these these prophets prophesying, and Samuel is leading them. And as they make their their entrance into the city to make a, a search to capture David, they are actually captured by the Holy Spirit. And they begin prophesying all together with the prophets, the police force. And the text doesn't say, but I've often wondered if they were actually prophesying about David's future kingship, How, how po- that would be poetic justice, wouldn't it? The text doesn't say that, so that's pure speculation. Well, Saul's police force return to him, and they tell him what's happened. So Saul says, all right, I'm going to send a second group. Same thing happens. They come back, tell him. So he sends a third group. Same thing happens. The Spirit of God intervenes, causes them to to well up in prophecy to the very ones who are trying to capture David. And finally, I get the impression that Saul may have said, all right, if you you want something done right, you just got to do it yourself, don't you? So Saul himself goes to Ramah to search and capture David. But the Spirit of God captures him too. He begins to prophesy. He strips off his clothes and he lays there half naked. Israel's most powerful citizen is subdued by the power of God's Spirit. And as Saul strips off his royal robes, it's, it's a, almost a poetic symbol that God has denied and rejected the kingship of Saul. One commentator summarizes this episode. The point is clear. David's back is to the wall. Saul will not grant him sanctuary, even in Samuel's company, so God sends forth his spirit in raw, irresistible power on Saul and his police forces and compels them to helplessness. Phenomenal set of stories. Two things stand out to me in this story. And the first is this. David is suffering immensely and unjustly. It's fairly obvious. He's gone from the most heralded and loved warrior in Israel to a refugee running for his life. And he hasn't done anything to Saul to deserve it. This is what a guy named Paul Tripp calls the heat of living in a fallen world. Just like David, there's a lot of differences between our situation today and David's, I would say. But just like David, we're going to experience a world filled with injustices. We're going to experience a world filled with bitter reversals, sour disappointments, a life where uh, our plans are that don't go as planned. A life where the joy and contentment promised in the Bible does not resemble our experience at all. We're going to face heat. The second thing that stands out to me in this passage is that God's deliverance does not mean that that David is done with suffering. Does it? David will continue fleeing for his life for the next decade. It's profound to me that God's deliverance does not mean, often, the end of suffering, the final suffering. It doesn't mean that we're now in the, in the free and clear and that we're not going to face any hardship or, or injustices anymore. But the point of, of God's deliverance here is that, not that there will be no future suffering, but that David is still standing under the suffering, that he's still surviving. I wonder what that has to say for us. Okay, but the question we're asking in this sermon series is how did these experiences in 1 Samuel 19 make David into the man he's going to be and not break him? How does the radical reversal of David's life from popular war hero to outcast cause him to trust more deeply in God rather than curse God? And we can answer that question meaningfully because we actually have David's response in the midst of 1 Samuel 19. We have his own prayer in the midst of these stories, and it's in Psalm 59. So I, I'd encourage you to, to turn there now, Psalm 59. Not sure what page number it's on, but if you get there, you can shout it out. What is it? 577. Seven. In Psalm 59, we see David's response to the heat the heat of living in a fallen world. Read the inscription with me at the top of Psalm 59. For the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy. I'd love to sing that song if we had it. We don't. Of David. When Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. That's 1 Samuel 19, 9-17. David is writing, is praying these words, perhaps even writing these words, soon after he escapes to make his way to Ramah, where Samuel is. Perhaps he's reciting these words next to Samuel, wondering if if perhaps Saul will relent now that he's got Samuel's protection. But I want to draw your attention to how David begins this prayer and how he concludes this prayer. David begins by crying out to God for deliverance. He handles the heat that he's experiencing by going straight to God. Verses 1 and 2. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. David is feeling the heat. (laughs) the heat of injustice, the heat of living in a broken world. He's facing uncertainty. His life is an enigma. Promised greatness, his present situation is terrible. The promises and the present don't harmonize at all for David. But when the heat bears down on him, he's not cursing God. Notice that. He's not cursing God. What is he doing? He's going straight to God. What is he not? Let's let's think about what he's not doing. He's not cursing God. He's not denying his pain and suffering. Friends, this this is one area, I think, where we often, when we get under the heat of living in a broken and fallen world, when we're facing injustices or suffering or pain or things that shouldn't be, we often deny the pain. Maybe not overtly, but we try to escape it. That's our coping mechanism. As if we can pretend, if it's not, if I pretend it's not there, maybe it won't be there. But friends, if David denies the heat, if he denies the injustices, if if he just tries to escape, pretend these sufferings aren't real, they'll be of no value to him. Because there's always mercy packed in with the affliction, isn't there? There's always mercy packed in with God's affliction. But if you deny the affliction, then you see you will get no mercy there. And, and here's the other thing. If, if, if your coping mechanism, and it's easy for any of us to do, if your coping mechanism with suffering and pain and the heat that life brings is escapism, friends, that's only gonna last so long. because eventually the heat of this broken world will press in on you and press in on you until you cannot escape it. And then when you haven't been, because you haven't been growing in faithfulness and trust through the trial, it will overwhelm you and it will crush you. And then you will curse God or you will give up on God. Escaping, denying the heat of this broken world is not how David responds, and it's not how you'll be able to respond in order to grow. He doesn't give up on God. I've heard people in my office tell me, God has cursed me. He's given up on me in light of this suffering. I'm done for, and I'm giving up. Friends, that is, Satan uses the heat of the fallen world. Satan's tool is to use the heat of this fallen world to cause you to give up on God. When the pressures lean into you, that's Satan's working his instrument in order to cause you to say, I'm done for, God's rejected me, he doesn't love me, I'm done with this. That's how Satan uses the very same thing that God is using to make you in order to break you. David's not rejecting God's plan either. I can, I can see myself in this situation going, okay, listen, Saul, I want to live a peaceful and quiet life. I know Saul, Samuel's anointed me as the future king. I know that's God's plan, but I just want to live a peaceful life. So how about this? I won't pursue the kingship if you don't pursue me. <laughs> Great. He doesn't do that. He takes the trial. He takes the injustice directly to God. Deliver me, verse one. Bring your justice into this world. In verse nine, David says, I will watch for you. That means I will wait for you to act. He's saying, I don't know how you're going to act, God. I don't know when you're going to act. But I do know you will act. That's how we should pray. Act, God. That's what we're doing on Wednesday nights when we, when we meet together as a church, to pray. We're at, we're, we, we are corporately, the people of God in Rotherham are meeting together to call the king of the universe to act on our behalf in Rotherham. End injustice. Bring your justice to bear in this world. Bring that person who is dead alive in Christ. Heal that body. Act on our behalf. We can't do it. That's a revolutionary cry on Wednesday nights. doesn't look very revolutionary, does it? But it is. It's us meeting to to call our God to act on his behalf in Rotherham. The second thing we can learn from Psalm 59 and David's response is that David embraces God's power and protection for himself. In the first two verses, David is making requests of God. It even sounds like he's commanding God, doesn't it? Deliver me! Be my fortress! Save me! But at the end of his prayer, notice, the circumstances have not changed, have they? But he strikes a different tone. He's singing a song of joyful triumph. Read with me in verses 16 and 17. I will sing of your strength, In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in time of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. How does heat form David rather than break David? he embraces God's power and protection for himself. In verse 16, David acknowledges that God is strong. In verse 17, he claims God's strength for himself. My strength. David embraces God's power, not his own. David also embraces the security that God provides, not the security that he can provide for himself. God is my fortress, my refuge. You see these life-crushing events Send David on a, on a campaign, not for self-empowerment. They put his power in perspective. These trials don't cause him to shore up his own security, but to trust in the security that God provides. In our fallen world, we are going to be tempted to respond to problems with one, self-empowerment, and two, trusting ourselves for security. Friends, the Bible is not a book primarily about self-empowerment. I know that's a buzzword. It's actually a, a book about coming to the end of yourself and flinging your hopeless life into the powerful hands of God. That's what this book's about. The Bible doesn't tell you to respond to trials by building your own fortress by insulating you, yourself from all the world's problems. That's, that's what most of the advertisement in today's world is taken up with. We think our money can do that, to insulate ourselves from problems. Maybe that's why we have insurance for literally everything that you're in your life that could be vulnerable. But, but neither your money, nor anything else you can possess can secure protection from the the heat of this broken world. Your only refuge can be God, And when you try to make your refuge in anything else, it's always going to fall short and it's going to end up disappointing you. The most important lesson David learns in the midst of this injustice are found in his closing words, my God, on whom... I can rely. David believes God is dependable, trustworthy, and that's what helps make him through this trial. I read a story recently about a a gentleman who was telling a story, uh, an autobiographical story of him when he was eight years old. He's eight years old on this fishing trip with his dad, and they are five miles out to sea in the ocean in a fairly small, tiny boat. And, and all of a sudden, a, a, sore, a fairly serious storm comes in. His dad seems a bit nervous, and he, he, he quickly puts a life jacket on his son, and he whispers in his son's ear, the, the guy who's telling this story, do you trust me? You need to trust me, okay? And then his dad throws him overboard. <laughs> He says, I'm quoting him, I plunged under the water, and I bobbed back up, coughing water out of my mouth. My breath was taken away by the frigid water water temperatures. I could barely see the waves rising around me. Then my dad jumped in as well. He held me and assured me we'd be okay. Then we watched our little boat flip and sink. Fifteen minutes later, the National Coast Guard helicopter comes and picks both of them up. His dad knew there was a serious problem with the boat, and he knew in a matter of minutes it would flip and sink, likely. And he didn't want to risk having his son trapped under the boat when it flipped, so he threw him overboard and quickly called in their coordinates to the National Coast Guard. In reflection on this, he goes, this singular event is where I learned what it meant meant to trust I learned what it meant that my dad was dependable. And that, in those moments, was the most important thing for me to understand. Friends, we, David, was thrown out of the boat by God, and he was crashing in the waters, and he had no idea why. And we're going to find ourselves thrown out of the boat in the middle of the ocean, And we have no idea why God is doing this or has allowed this. And it's at those moments where we must understand that our father is supremely more dependable than that father. David trusts that God is more powerful than Saul. David trusts that God loves him, verse 17. David trusts that God will hand out justice. David trusts God. Okay, Luke, I have a question. None of us are David. We are not the promised king through whom God will foreshadow and bring his final messianic king. So what does this have to do with me? I didn't receive any of those promises. And my friend, that is true. We must be careful not to draw a direct line from David to us. But when you explore the entire Bible story, I think you'll find something astonishing. When we get to the book of Acts 2, we see the greater David, this King Jesus, gives his followers a gift called the Holy Spirit, which played a prominent role in this story too, didn't it? And what that means for us is that we have unrestrained access to God. Why could, why could David say, you are my fortress, my security, my power, my presence, It's because he he uniquely, as the king of Israel, had God's spirit upon him, and he had unique access to God. The the beautiful thing, but that that wasn't across all of Israel. That was David's unique cry. In the new covenant, with the promise and this gift of the Holy Spirit, we can, too, have access to God. We can claim like David, Father, you are my strength. You are my fortress and my refuge. Father, you are my security. And therefore, I will sing of your love and I will depend upon you when I am thrown out of the overboard. How can the heat shape me and not break me? That's the question we're asking. I want to read you a story from a book I've been reading. When Spencer was summoned to his boss's office that morning, he thought it was for a raise. His plan had worked. He wanted to establish his career, save some money, and then think about getting married and having a family. Spencer had been incredibly successful. In fact, he was the youngest person ever to run a design team in his company. There had been talk of a a bonus and even being named director of the design department. He had always had a good relationship with the boss, so, so he looked forward to meeting with his boss and talking about his future at the company. As he entered the office, his boss was more serious than usual. That was odd. His design team had just completed work on a cutting-edge product it had cost them a lot of personnel time and company money but they were about to roll out this new prototype i've got bad news the boss said the product they thought was unique had just been introduced by another company they had been so focused on design that they had neglected market research It was a costly error that had threatened the entire company's survival and Spencer heard words that he never thought he would hear. I'm going to have to let you go and frankly I don't know if you're going to be able to work in this field. His life was over. His carefully laid out plans shattered in one conversation. It didn't seem possible and it surely didn't feel real but the months to come would demonstrate just how real it really was. I think it's fair to assume that most of us aren't running for our lives from a uh, a crazed, bloodthirsty king. (laughs) But we do, like Spencer, experience trauma, severe disappointments, unexpected tragedies, life-altering news, friends those soul crushing events in our life are opportunities to either retreat from god or to trust more deeply in god you see the heat can actually be a blessing because it can reveal it can open up our hearts it can reveal false assumptions in the recesses of your heart it can it can reveal that deep down you think you're invincible it can reveal deep-rooted self-sufficiency. It can reveal a hidden mindset that I have the wisdom and strength to handle this on my own. I don't need God and I don't need his people. Where the, where the heat of this world opens up our insufficiencies, it's packed with mercy. But the only chance you have of surviving the heat that inevitably comes in this broken world, and not just surviving the heat, but growing in the heat, is when you embrace God as your ultimate and most treasured possession. That's how you grow in the heat. That's how you're made into the person God wants you to be, and not broken down. When you rely that he is the ultimate, he is the treasured, possession, my strength. If he is your strength, then you don't need to grasp for power when you feel powerless. If he is your fortress, then you don't need to get security for yourself at all costs. And you won't be crushed when you experience injustice or when you feel powerless, or when you are vulnerable, because you can entrust your life to God's final justice. And let me tell you, friends, God cares about justice far more than you do. And he will execute his justice. Embrace God, and you can rest in the powerful protection that only he can provide, the good Father. Let's pray.